They say flying is the safest way to travel. I suppose all the statistics and such that back up that statement is proof enough. Reader's Digest tells me that I'm far more likely to die of unintentional poisoning than in a plane crash, but honestly, that just gave me a new thing to worry about. I'm not a fan of flying, but having grown up on an island where it's planes, boats, or stay and put, there's not much of a choice. But joking aside, millions of people fly all over the globe every year, and the overwhelming majority of them arrive safely. However, an overwhelmingly minority of flights disappear without a trace. These are the stories we're going to tell you about, the aviation disappearances that are beyond strange. In other words, the aviation disappearances that are some weird. Welcome to the Some Weird Podcast, a podcast about strange and unusual stories told by us, a sister and brother team hailing from the island of Newfoundland. I'm your co-host, Chrissy. And I'm your co-host, Barry. In this episode, we are taking to the weird skies to talk about aviation disappearances. Yeah, like I said, they say that flying is the safest way to travel, so I think you're probably good to fly 99% of the time. But once in a great while, a plane seems to disappear into the ether. Or get abducted by aliens. Who knows? Before we get on the goal, have you ever been onto a flight where there's like this crazy turbulence and lights flicker and all that kind of shit? Uh, yes. I don't like flying, even if it's a smooth and wonderful flight. I do not like it. But I have flown into St. John's in the fog, and yeah. it's been so turbulent that when we landed, it sounded like every dish on the plane broke. Yeah, I've had a couple of rough landings coming into St. John's, and uh, yeah, it's it's not nice. I would prefer. Maybe the next time I fly, I'll be able to do this because my kids are old enough just to take a knockout pill at the beginning and just wake up on the other end. It doesn't bother me that much where I want to be knocked out or anything like that. Okay. But, I mean, I, I don't mind flying, but when the turbulence hits, you kind of get that little lump in your throat like, uh-oh, this is one of those 1%. Right. And it's one of those cases where the biggest atheist in the world will be like, oh, God, please save me. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, that's uh, our little preamble, and let's get some weird flights on the go. Yeah, I think I'm starting it out this week. Yep. Flight 19, here we go. I'm sure that, if asked, 30 Helens would agree that the Bermuda Triangle is the most well-known mysterious place on Earth. 30 Helens? If you get that reference, we could be friends. Okay, so right off the bat, I didn't get that reference. If you don't get it, then I suggest Googling the classic Canadian sketch comedy show, The Kids in the Hall, which aired on CBC right after the equally awesome Newfoundland sketch comedy show, Codco back when I was a teenager. Basically, they would get together with 30 Helens, which were a bunch of old ladies, and they would have like these really stupid surveys, but all the Helens were standing in a field, and they'd be like, 30 Helens agree, and they'd all raise their hand. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. A listener was talking to me recently, and they said, you guys really don't know your stories before you start, and we don't, and the reason being is for reaction like that. I think that's a good example. There. Yeah. <laughs> you already had what you were going to say afterwards if you didn't get the reference when I already piped in and pretty much let the cat out of the bag that I didn't get the reference, so. Back to the story. Why would so many Helens and non-Helens alike know that the Bermuda Triangle is mysterious? It kind of seems like a global folklore almost, like everybody knows the Bermuda Triangle has some idea of what it is. Yeah. We all seem to collectively know that a whole bunch of ships and planes disappeared without a trace in this area of the Atlantic Ocean. And we also have a vague knowledge that if you're in the Bermuda Triangle, uh, your compass and your other instruments aren't going to work. Like There has to be some kind of physical or reasoning for that, right? It must be some magnetic energy or some shit like that, or... 
I don't know, but people have been trying to explain it since it became a thing. And I'll get into a little bit of okay. what's on the go a little bit later in my story. On a personal note, the whole world is the Bermuda Triangle to me because I have no sense of direction. So I don't even oh, need yeah. to be in the Bermuda Triangle to not know where I'm going. Yeah, and I suffer from that as well. Not as bad as you or mom, I don't think, but... Uh, <laughs> Gee, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no offense, but uh, I'm not good at that. It's our version of the Force. Yes, but it's an incredible weakness. That's right. <laughs> but anyway, a lot of people that have a normal sense of direction probably have asked the question, if we all know that you're definitely going to fall off the face of the earth if you go into the Bermuda Triangle, then why don't we even bother to go there at all? Could we just unilaterally agree to not go there? Yeah, let's just go around it. Right? But although the stories seem cool, if you're into strange and paranormal stuff like us, the truth of the matter is that there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that more planes or ships disappear in the Bermuda Triangle than from any other place in the ocean that's similarly traveled. Is that right? I would have thought statistically it would be, and that's why we know of it. That's exactly what you think, but it's all really a story. But the story okay. came from somewhere, and this is the story of where it started. Where it came from? Okay. Mm -hmm. So that statistic of as many planes and boats disappear anywhere in the ocean comes from NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, not the biblical guy who built an ark. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Although you could argue that he probably had some sort of nautical expertise. Yeah, I think he was the original. <laughs> yep, not him though. Still, the story about the mysterious triangle persists. So my question is why? Yeah. So for my story of this episode of the Somewhere Podcast, I'm going to tell you about the aviation disappearance that helped kick off this pop cultural phenomenon. This is the story of the ill-fated Flight 19. In 1903, brothers Orville and Wilbur Wright successfully flew what's generally considered to be the world's first heavier-than-air airplane at Kitty Hawk, and there was much rejoicing. You're really bring it back to the beginning there. Yeah. Well, I mentioned Noah, and now I'm going back to yes, right. 1903. But what a fantastic technological leap forward for humankind. Yeah. You know where I first learned that? Where? Do you remember the Charlie Brown encyclopedias that we had? Yes. Oh, my God. I totally forgot. But yes. This is where I first learned about the, the Wright brothers. It was in one of those. Did we get those from like Sobeys or something? I think so. I I don't know where we got them. I, it was it was a grocery store. What it was always not. I don't know. But if anybody doesn't know, there are these encyclopedias about interesting facts, such as the first flight in human history, and it was with all peanuts characters. Yeah, I totally forgot. Those were excellent. Part of my childhood. They were your introduction to the Funkin' Wagnalls. <laughs> That's right. Which I also get from the grocery store. <laughs> you got all your information from the grocery store back in the eighties. Anyway, just over a decade after the first flight, humankind adapted their invention as a tool of war during the Great War, which is what they called it back then, because it would have been kind of weird if they called it World War One as it was happening. It had a sequel before you could have the, the one. That's right. And in every war since then, aircraft have been used, even during our oft-mentioned Cold War, as tools <laughs> of war. That goes far as to say it's probably the main tool of war now. Now? Oh, it's drones now. It's yeah, like I think it's game. going to drones, which kind of makes me feel better, but also a little bit more creeped out. Like, when is Skynet happening? When Skynet happens, we're in trouble, yeah. Anyway, let's try not to think about that. I'm already afraid about being unintentionally poisoned. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> World War II officially ended on September 1st and 2nd of 1945, and this was the unofficial kickoff of the Cold War. 
Even though the six-plus-year global conflict was done, we still had to make sure that we were ready for the next pending war against our new enemies, the communists. Now, part of this Cold War readiness plan resulted in the arms race, which is where all hands strove for the biggest, baddest weapons, just in case. A few short months after the end of World War II, on the afternoon of December 5, 1945, the American Navy were conducting training exercises from their base in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The exercise included a team of military planes and a specific pattern to drop test bombs near a place delightfully named Hens and Chicken Shoals. <laughs> they were to fly east from Fort Lauderdale to Hens and Chicken Shoals, then north over the Grand Bahama Island, and then southeast back to Fort Lauderdale. It was pretty routine. In fact, that day, the first 18 of these exercises went off without a hitch, which is why this was called Flight 19. But Flight 19 involved five TBM Avenger torpedo bombers, and they were not so lucky. Four of the five planes on Flight 19 had three crew members, and the fifth plane had two. The leader was an experienced pilot named Charles Taylor, not to be confused with Chuck Taylor of Converse All-Star sneaker boot fame, that's high-top sneakers in America, or the wrestler Chuck Taylor. Oh, I was about to say it. Who I had never heard of before Googling that name. Okay, good. I put notes in case you didn't know who it was. Go ahead. Tell us who Chuck Taylor the wrestler is. I don't know a whole lot about him. He's more of an indie guy. He wrestled a lot of PWG, which is Pro Wrestling Gorilla, which is this like super indie, hard to find stuff that does a lot of like, I wouldn't say comedy <laughs> wrestling, but that type of thing. Yeah. I want to say he's from Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, your favorite place? My favorite place in the world, home of the Cleveland Browns, the, <laughs> the most heartbreaking team to support in the history of professional sports. <laughs> but yeah, that's Chuck Taylor. You should become a wrestling historian. <laughs> like, you just know stuff. It's weird. Um, okay, wrestling aside, this Chuck Taylor was a young, but he was an experienced U.S. Navy lieutenant who actually fought in World War II. So the first leg of this practice mission was uneventful. But when the group turned north, Lieutenant Taylor reported that his compasses were suddenly malfunctioning, making it difficult for him to determine where they were. Now, what was especially unusual about this mission was they went out to do like a fake bombing thing as part of their training. But it was also so that they can get more accustomed to navigation. So they were supposed to use what's called dead reckoning, which if you're out in the open ocean and everything looks the same how you get your bearings to find out where you are and how to get back home. Okay. His compasses were suddenly malfunctioning, and then the weather turned bad. Previously, the day was a perfect blue sky, but it turned dark and the rain rolled in. One of the pilots ominously reported back via radio that they did not know where they were. But I guess if you're flying over the ocean, everything pretty much looks the same, so I don't know how they ever know where they are. This is exactly why when pilots become disoriented over the Atlantic, they are taught to fly towards the setting sun. That's to the west, not straight up in outer space. Don't, <laughs> don't go up. So if you fly to the west, eventually you're going to hit the east coast if you're in the Atlantic. These naval pilots probably all had a very excellent sense of direction. And so they were probably really freaking out when they suddenly didn't know where they were. From land... Taylor was told to fly towards the setting sun, but for some reason, he remained utterly convinced that this was not going to help him. Finally, he did agree to change the course and heed the advice that he'd been given, but only for a short time. So he's like, okay, fine, I'll go towards the sun. But then after a very short time, he said, no, this doesn't feel right. I don't know where I am. I'm changing direction again. There was five planes all going together. So all the people that were with him had to follow him wherever he was going. 
even though he was going west and doing what he was being told to do from the ground, he decided to change direction again. And understandably, the ground crew were like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Just fly west. That's all you have to do right now. But their frustration turned into panic when the radio contact got fainter and fainter. And they heard Lieutenant Taylor over the radio say, we'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we all go down together, followed by an empty, eerie, staticky silence. That's creepy. Yeah. The Navy personnel on shore did not realize that they were witnessing the origin story of the Bermuda Triangle. At the time, they were just concerned with finding and rescuing the young men who were supposed to be on a safe and normal training exercise. So, to this end, at about 7.30 p.m., two PBM Mariner flying boats were sent out to find Flight 19. And I assume a flying boat is a plane that can land on water and not some kind of weird James Bond shit. Is that like one of them pontoon planes? I didn't see a picture of them, but that's what I'm assuming. Is it like night boat, the crime fighting boat? <laughs> yeah. So they sent out night boat, but after about 20 minutes, they also disappeared without a trace. Nobody knows what happened to these rescue planes and no wreckage or bodies from them were ever found. But it's pretty well believed that the night boats <laughs> exploded. The PBM Mariner flying boats were apparently very prone to filling up with gas fumes and blowing up. Now, I can't offer any kind of a logical reason why they continued to be in use after the first dozen or so exploded, but I'm not a, a military strategist, I guess. No, that's right. Anyway, that rescue attempt failed. The next day, a total of about 300 ships and planes were sent out to find what the hell happened to Flight 19, and I assume the flying boats that were sent out originally to look for them. For five full days, they searched what they believed to be the most likely area of the Atlantic Ocean where they might find any trace of Flight 19. This area was about 300,000 square miles, and no one found one single solitary clue. The disappearance of Flight 19 was quite a mystery, because not only did the initial rescue planes disappear without a trace, but hundreds of people on hundreds of ships and planes over several days found no evidence of Flight 19. It was as if it simply vanished. The Navy's official documents on this case state that the disappearance was due to, quote, causes or reasons unknown, which is unsettling, I would say. Yes. At first, this incident remained within the knowledge realm of the Navy, but in the years to come, it became quite well known outside of the sphere. While stories of strange phenomena in the general area have been reported since at least as far back as Christopher Columbus, the loosely defined perimeter of this weird place was not laid out until 1952 by an author named George Sand. It was then when his article for Fate magazine about weird disappearances, including Flight 19, described a triangular-shaped area of the Atlantic that seemed to have more than its fair share of such disappearances. In 1964, Vincent Gaddis christened this space the Bermuda Triangle, and it's been cemented as a strange place rife with paranormal activity in our collective consciousness ever since. Nobody knows to this day for sure what happened to Flight 19, but a person with a healthy skepticism might say that the team leader became disoriented and unintentionally led the group so far off course that they eventually ran out of fuel and were swallowed by the drink. After all, there are countless wrecks that have never been recovered, and probably as many stories about why, ranging from aliens to wormholes to alternate dimensions to probably even fairies. <laughs> <laughs> My youngest kid told me the other day that there's a theory that Amelia Earhart crashed and was eaten by coconut crabs. Apparently that's a theory that people know about. 
Anyway, uh, there are too many weird theories about why the Bermuda Triangle is the way that it is. So I'll only quickly mention one because it made me laugh like a 14-year-old boy. And that theory is methane. <laughs> Goes like this. Under the ocean surface are pockets of methane gas. As pressure builds, just like it does in your guts, gas eventually needs to get released. And the result is epic ocean farts that have the potential to be violent enough to capsize an entire ship if said ship happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, like an unfortunate soul stuck in an elevator with someone who had recently consumed copious amounts of chili chicken. <laughs> I'm sure you've had many victims in your life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Epic. This theory was born from the discovery of undersea craters, not in the Bermuda Triangle, by Norwegian scientists. They believe that the craters are the result of methane gas releases, and other people, maybe scientists, maybe conspiracy theorists, apply this theory to the disappearance of ships in the Bermuda Triangle. The likelihood of being in the path of an ocean fart big enough to destroy a ship seems pretty low, but I guess it's as plausible as aliens. And of course, the farts are probably not ever big enough to reach the airplanes of Flight 19, but who knows? Stranger things have happened. Actually, they probably have not. <laughs> so if you're in a Bermuda Triangle and you like light a match, is it just going to whole thing going to explode these poor norwegian scientists they were actual like oceanographers whatever they're called yep. you know they're studying the ocean floor or whatever and they find these craters and they put forth this theory that you know it's methane gas it makes sense and then someone saw that and said oh an ocean fart could yeah. take a ship down in the bermuda triangle it's like what the this is not what i went to school for people yeah, so how do you get these jobs like what do you do for a living oh i measure the farts at the ocean I don't know, but I recently learned that you could become a professional skeptic as a job. There you go. Sounds like a place I want to work at. That's right. Anyway, that's the story of Flight 19. It's the one that kicked off the Bermuda Triangle. For some reason, I thought the Bermuda Triangle was known longer than 1964. Like yeah, earlier sure, than yeah. 1964. Something very weird happens. And in my opinion, the guy was convinced that he was going the right way. All his shit wasn't working right. And he ended up leading the team in the wrong direction. Led him astray, yeah. How many wrecks and everything are under the ocean? Like, look how long it took to uh, discover the Titanic. Exactly, yeah. You know, and they knew the path, <laughs> you know. Exactly where it was. They still couldn't find it, yeah. Exactly. So how many disappearances, and you probably don't know the answer to this, and it's fine if you don't, but how many of these disappearances have happened in the Bermuda Triangle since this time? Like, there has to be at least more than one to, for the, the mythology to live along. I actually wrote a note that I have all the way over there. <laughs> it's too far away, so we, we, we'll never know. 50 boats, 20 planes, and 500 years. But I've also read, like, oh, 8,000 people disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle. So I don't really know the number. I think people just say numbers. I don't know. Thousands significant. And here's another question. There's land within the Bermuda Triangle. The people living there, are they leaning into it like a haunted house kind of a place? Yeah. Downwind from all the Bermuda Triangle farts. <laughs> I wonder. That's what kicked it all off, though. I had no idea. That's what caused it. Like a, a military operation got awry. But you knew the Bermuda Triangle was a place and a thing. Oh, yeah. Weird, right? I never knew the origin story of it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about a story here. That it's a very recent story. And to me, living in the age that we do of GPS is everywhere and everything's connected to the Internet and this and that, it's, it's amazing to me that uh, an airplane can just disappear out of nowhere. But we're going to talk about uh, Malaysia Flight 370. I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah. And like I said, I, I knew about it when it happened, and I was shocked. But I never really looked into the, the meat and potatoes of what happened. Mm -hmm. 
But uh, quickly, I want to get into a few things, and we kind of touched on some of this before. But uh, how many times do you think you've flown in your life? Flown in my life? Um, hundred fifty? No, gosh, I would say maybe twenty times. Maybe. Okay, I've definitely flown more than that. Oh yeah, I mean, you can't go anywhere unless you fly. And like I said, you're not afraid of flying, but you'd prefer not to fly if you didn't have to. Is that a fair statement? Very fair statement, yes. You know, some people have a deathly fear of flying, but as you said in your intro, the truth is statistically you're much safer flying than you are driving. When you think about it, planes have strict safety standards and are given routine maintenance. Their operators are very well qualified. You don't just go to Harbor Grace and Parallel Park <laughs> once and Angle Park once, and then here's your license. You, you could drive to China if you want, right? <laughs> no. So it, there's a lot more strict uh, training than that. And vehicles, like I said, regular maintenance. I was recently driving a vehicle where you had to put it in neutral to start. The engine light was on. The wipers didn't work. The ABS didn't work. The traction control didn't work. And a few weeks ago, the axle actually cracked on it to the point where I had to uh, get it scrapped at a local scrapyard. So Was this your car? This was my car, yes. Because oh, I know you were in the market for a new car, and I thought you test drove a car that yep. had all that bullshit going on with it. No, no. That's, that's what happened to my car before I finally uh, had to get rid of it. And this was the car to let my sister use when she visited a while ago and almost <laughs> killed her. Yep. Did I tell you that we test drove a car and it got on fire? <laughs> got on fire. Motivated <Yes>. seller. <laughs> yeah, motivated seller indeed. Yeah. You know, you don't get on a plane and <laughs> you fly for five minutes and you catch it on fire. So Usually. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But the problem is plane travel is very safe. But when there is an issue with a plane or there is an accident, it makes major news. It's not like a fender bender or caught on fire in some rich neighborhood and you laugh about it later. It's everybody's dead. <laughs> <laughs> yep. One such disaster that made major headlines in 2014 was Malaysia Flight 370. And the biggest reason this aircraft made the news was not because of the crash, but because it completely vanished off the face of the earth. Yeah. You know of this story, right? You don't probably don't know nuts and bolts, but... I know the highlight. A modern-day giant passenger plane disappeared and nobody knows what happened. Yep. That's all I know, though. Here's kind of what happened. Okay. You can probably do a 10-part series on this situation. But here's my version of it. On March 8, 2014, Malaysian Flight 370 took off from Kuala Lumpur International Airport to make the 4,300-kilometer flight to Beijing, basically a straight northwest trajectory. The aircraft was a Boeing 777, and this aircraft had 282 passengers. So you ever been one of them planes where like, there's two seats on one side, there's three in the middle, and then there's two on the next side, like the three rows? Yes. It's one of those big ones like that, right? Oh, Okay. Up to 282 people. This particular flight had 227 people on it. Uh, 153 were Chinese citizens, 38 were from Malaysia, and the rest were from 12 different countries. That's just the make of, a, of the flight. Okay. This plane, this specific vessel, had been in operation since May of 2002 and had over 7,500 takeoffs and landings to its credit without any incident. The plane last received maintenance on February 23, 2014, and it was found to be in compliance with all safety regulations. So it didn't have a single rusted off axle like mine. Car. <laughs> Your car was definitely haunted, though. Yeah, for sure. This flight was piloted by 53-year-old Captain Zahara Ahmed Sah. He began flying in 1981 and had over 18,000 hours of flying experience. So this is a pretty well-seasoned captain. Yeah. And it's the thing, too. You don't want to be on a plane. Oh, this is my first flight. Eh, maybe I don't want to be on that flight. No. Or for that matter, the first time the plane goes. Like, I yeah, want a plane that's been proven to go a few times. Yeah, give me one that's a uh, year on the flight. Right. That's good. 
Uh, the co-pilot was 27-year-old Farouk Abdul Hamad. Uh, he started flying in 2007, and he had over 2,700 hours. So he wasn't okay. experienced, but certainly not a rookie by any means. Right. There's also 10 cabin crew on board. And the flight was scheduled to leave at 12.35 uh, local time, and it was scheduled to arrive in Beijing at 6.30 a.m. So again, you're looking at five hours and 34 minutes and a northwestern trajectory. Uh, had enough fuel for about seven hours and 31 minutes, an extra two hours worth. More than enough to divert to several surrounding airports in case of emergency, which has to be part of the regulation. You don't want to be <laughs> driving with the gas light on, I guess, in an airplane, right? Right, exactly, yeah. The flight was delayed by seven minutes, and that's by no means unusual. But it did take off at 12.42 a.m. local time in Kuala Lumpur. Air traffic control cleared the plane to climb to 18,000 feet. The command was acknowledged by the pilot, and um, they did so. Air traffic control then gave the okay to climb to 35,000 feet, which was the cruising altitude. Again, the command was acknowledged and returned by the captain. At 1.19 in the morning, the final verbal transmission was received from the flight. The air traffic controller in Kuala Lumpur said they were leaving their airspace and they were flying over to Vietnam. So they had to hand over the air traffic control duties to Ho Chi Minh Airport, the air traffic controllers there. Okay. So once it entered Vietnamese airspace, protocol was to signal Ho Chi Minh City air traffic control, but this did not happen. At 1.20 in the morning, which is a minute later, Flight 370 was observed on radar at Kuala Lumpur. It passed whatever specific waypoint, and then it just disappeared five seconds later. Sorry, so if the Kuala Lumpur air traffic controller were watching, you know, all the bips and bleeps and bloops and whatever the on the screen. And the swoops and the sweeps, lots of bleeps and the sweeps. Exactly. But they're watching all that and they see like 370 is on their radar or whatever it's called, yeah. right? Their green screen with the things spinning around. Exactly. And then when it goes out of their airspace and into the Ho Chi Minh airspace, then they shouldn't see it on their bleep block. I think they machine. can still see it, but because oh, it's can. not in their airspace, they're not... Responsible. Responsible, yeah, that's right. Oh, okay. It just disappeared like completely off the radar screens. And at the same time, it also disappeared off the Ho Chi Minh City air traffic control crowd, too. Oh, so it wasn't seen anywhere. Yeah, it wasn't seen anywhere. Oh, okay. Completely disappeared. Obviously, that's concerning. So, <laughs> yeah, the uh, Ho Chi Minh City never did get the command saying, you know, we acknowledge you in our airspace or however, whatever words they got to say for that. But at 1.30, there's a pilot of another aircraft, and they were raised by the Ho Chi Minh City Air Traffic Control and asked if they could try to use the uh, international air distress frequency to try to relay the message that they need to speak to the air traffic control of Vietnam to uh, acknowledge that they're in their airspace. So the captain of the other plane was able to establish communication but they only heard mumbling and static. Huh. These radar, the way it works, it relies on a signal emitted by a transponder on the aircraft. So it can only be concluded that the transponder was no longer functioning at this point. Okay. So at least at this point, they have some kind of a logical explanation, possibly, for why they lost communication. Yep. So the final transponder data indicated that the aircraft was flying at 35,000 feet. Mm -hmm. as per the uh, air traffic control instructions, and it was estimated to have around six hours of fuel left. Okay. Once they finally discovered that the flight was gone and they announced that the flight's been missing and presumed lost, uh, it was not known, but the military radar could actually still track down a plane, even when this transponder turned off. I don't know how they can do it or whatever, but Malaysian military had the ability to do that. I guess they didn't want to announce it at the time, and this didn't come out until several months later when they looked at the records for this. It showed the plane made a, a slight right turn from its original route and then did a hard left, doing the whole 180 and started traveling the south direction. Oh, okay. 
And you can imagine if you ever hit turbulence in a plane, what that feels like. Just imagine going at 800 miles an hour, doing a complete 180. I mean, just think about how unsettling it is when you're landing and it's doing that yes. tilt. Yeah. Imagine, oh my God, doing it at 35,000 feet. Just like that, like, like stopping at a dime and just caught in it, right? Like a bunch of skeets doing donuts. Doing donuts in the plane, right? So the flight was detected at various waypoints uh, on this new route at 130, 152, and 203. Wait, by the military or by? Yes, by the military. Okay. Yeah. At 2.22 in the morning, it went beyond the reaches of Malaysian military radar. So at that point, they lost it, right? Okay. 2.25, the aircraft satellite system sent a login message saying that the thing logged off and it was tempting to log in. Amerisat, which is the satellite company that dealt with the satellite phone, attempted to call the cockpit using the satellite link at 239.717. Both calls went through, but they were unanswered. So it's not like the phone was off. You know when you call something, the phone's off, it goes right to voicemail? Yes. And if you don't, it rings 10 times and nobody answers, then it goes to voicemail. So it did the ring in 10 times thing, but nobody ever answered, right? Okay. So the final satellite acknowledgement occurred at 810, one hour and 40 minutes after the scheduled arrival in Beijing. Every hour or so, the cockpit would send the thing back looking, trying to log in. So after 810, it stopped pinging. Okay. At this point, obviously, you don't know what happened, but at 724 in the morning, an hour after scheduled arrival time, the airline issued a media statement saying that communication with the flight was lost at 2.40 in the morning. They later reissued a statement to say it was 1.21 in the morning, and the flight was presumed lost. Neither the crew nor aircraft's communication system sent a distress signal. No bad weather was reported, and no technical problems before it vanished off the radar. And I'm trying to follow it along because there's a lot of details here. So yep. um, in the immediate days or hours of this happening... Yep. It was unknown at that time that the military was able to see, you know. The... Exactly. Okay. They think about them months later. So okay. as far as everybody knew, at 121 in the morning, they, they lost communication with this. And then at that point, they had no idea what happened to it. In the air traffic controller's perception, the plane should have still been going on its way to Beijing. Exactly. But they, then they lost track of it, right? So what they did was when they started the search, it was over the ocean. So they said, okay, this is where the plane must have crashed somewhere around here. So. Mm. They started searching in that area. And a giant search for the wreckage plane took place when it was announced it was missing. This was the most expensive search and rescue mission ever, or search mission. I guess it wasn't really a rescue mission at this point. You can survive. I guess you can, yeah. If you crash on like a desert island with smoke monsters and, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but you might get eaten by a coconut crab. That's right. Uh, originally, the search area was focused on where radar was lost. But once the military info was made public, then they changed the search to where it was in the new flight path. So they basically said, okay, this is how much fuel they had. This is the way they are going. So this must be around where it was, right? Was there a reason why the military didn't come out right away? I think the main reason why the military didn't come out right away is because they didn't want other nations to know what their military radar could do and what their reach was. Okay. So were there conspiracy theories that that whole military stuff was made up? There's all kinds of crackpot theories, and I'm sure you can think of the black holes and the aliens and all that, right? But uh, there's a couple of plausible ones that we'll get into. Oh, okay, good. So basically, the search happened, and it was going on for years, but finally it was suspended on January 17, 2017. There was no real evidence located. That's a good three years, is it? Yeah, exactly. It was the most expensive of all time. Now, I don't think they were 24-7 for three years, but uh, no, they officially called it off at that point. Some debris actually did wash on shore in different locations. It was positively identified as wreckage from the plane, which makes you think that the aliens didn't get it or anything like that, right? So a flap-on, which I think it's, it's you know, ever see on the wing when it lands, it kind of goes up and down. I guess it changes the wind drag or whatever. Yeah. That was found on a beach in a place called St. Andre Reunion, which is an island in the western Indian Ocean. So the serial number on that matched that of the plane. 
and other debris washed up in different locations too. The conclusion is it flew till it ran out of fuel and then it crashed somewhere in the ocean. Right. But what actually happened, no one really knows and no one's ever found it. And, and to your point about the Titanic, I mean, they knew exactly where the Titanic was and it took them 80 years to find it, right? Right. It's not an easy thing to do. Whatever happened here, we don't really know, but there's some theories. Number one is hypoxia. You ever hear of that term before? No. It's a deprivation of oxygen brought on by cabin decompression. Okay. So the thought is there's some error in the system that caused cabin pressure to drop, depriving people of oxygen until all the crew and passengers passed out. During the time of decompression, the pilot was disoriented and turned off the transponder and made the evasive mover to turn the plane around. Why would that cause him to turn the plane around? Yeah, and that's probably one of the things with this theory why it doesn't make sense. Mm, I was with you until that part. It makes sense that that could have happened and everyone passed out and then just sailed an autopilot until the gas ran out or whatever. But uh, to make that abrasive 180 turn, it had to be manually done. Unless he slumped over on the steering wheel of the plane. He hit the button like this. Yeah, whatever that is. Then we just go around in circles and circles, I guess, right? I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, here's a theory that kind of adds on to that one is number two is the pilot did it. Uh, so this pilot recently received bad news from a personal standby. His wife was leaving him. He was having some personal problems. Theory maintains the pilot decided to commit suicide and mass murder by taking 230 souls with him. You know, if ever cabin pressure drops, then the masks drop down? Yeah. I think they only give you like 15 minutes of oxygen, but in the uh, <laughs> cockpit, there's like three hours of oxygen or something crazy like that. Well, so that I don't doesn't know why. seem fair. <laughs> well, I guess he got to land the plane. I guess it could be much more catastrophe if the plane doesn't land, but I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, but wouldn't you be landing a plane full of corpses if they only got 15 minutes? <laughs> yeah, I guess it's better than flying in something, killing people. I, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, anyways, we won't discuss the ethics of the amount of oxygen provided to you. Exactly, but this theory maintains that the pilot turned off the transponder, depressurized the cabin, and then flew the plane into the ocean. You figure, though, if someone's going to commit suicide, they'll do it themselves. Why would they kill 230-ish innocent people as well? Did the pilot have any history of any mental illness or... No, not at all. And uh, during the aftermath of the flight, uh, there was background checks on all crew and passengers. And this pilot specifically had a flight simulator in his house. And a route very similar to the 1370 diverted to was saved on this simulator. And he flew it in the simulator recently. The weird turn and everything? Yeah, I know about the weird turn, but certainly flying in that area, right? Okay. That explains why the plane flew to the area it did, if that actually matches up. But apparently this guy loved flying. His family says this guy lived to fly. And he had, you know, a simulator that he was flying in his personal time when he wasn't flying for real. And that mm -hmm. just could have been, you know, him playing around with a simulator and just flying in different places of the world that he hadn't seen before. Well, yeah, I wonder if they looked at all the other simulations that he did. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, they say that he loved life and he loved flying. And there's no way that he would take his life in the air like that. If he was going to commit suicide, he wouldn't do it doing the thing he loves. Other people say, well, you know, his wife left him and that love left him. So he decided to take the other love of his life. Who knows, right? Again, it's one thing to commit suicide. It's another to kill 230 people, right? Yeah, that's a tough theory because you don't know what's going to set somebody off sometimes. You know, yeah, I think you right. would escalate somehow. Yeah, for sure. But uh, who knows? The mind is a complicated thing. <laughs> it is, yeah. So the next theory is the pilot did it part two. This theory maintains that the pilot was trying to kill everybody on board, but again, instead trying to save them. Okay. I like this one better so far. <laughs> That's right. So it'd be funny if some people thought this guy was a mass murderer and turned out he was trying to be a hero, right? The core of this one is basically on takeoff, they think that it's possible that one of the tires blew out or something and ended up catching fire. So the fire eventually spread to the main part of the plane and damaged the transponder. Realizing the plane was on fire, the pilot realized he had to find an airport as soon as possible. The closest one was him taking that trajectory to make that big turn to get to the closest airport that could facilitate a landing. 
So I figured, you know, I'll find it close to the airport. I can try and land this thing before it burns out. Right. But the smoke from the fire ended up killing everybody on board, and the plane just flew until it ran out of fuel and crashed. So far, this one seems the most likely, I guess. That seems, yeah, plausible, right? I mean, I yeah. don't know how soon a fire would happen on takeoff and how soon they could see that and all that type of stuff, but... Or if not specifically a fire happened, some damage occurred during flight. Some and... emergency happened. Yes. They had to land right away. Uh, he tried to get them to, to the closest airport. Unfortunately, due to whatever happened, the cabin depressurized and everybody suffocated. Yeah, it could be a combination of a bunch of the theories. Yeah. Okay. Another one is, you hear airplane disasters, the first thing a lot of people think of is hijacking. Mm. Again, during the investigation, when they investigated all the different passengers on the flight, it was discovered that two Iranian passengers were flying with stolen passports. One was an Italian, one was Australian. Uh, these passports were listed on Interpol's lost documents list. I guess they have lists of, of stolen passports that they check. And Malaysian immigration was criticized for not properly checking these passports because they would have came up if they had to do it. Both of the men purchased two one-way tickets to Europe, and it was reported that they called from a payphone in Thailand and asked for the two cheapest tickets to Europe and paid in cash. That's all very suspicious, but okay, continue, sorry. But yeah, there's something going on there, but it was determined they were secretly trying to seek asylum or escape from Iran or trying to become a refugee in, in Europe as opposed to, you know, taking a plane and flying into the middle of the ocean for no reason, right? It wasn't any terrorist action. Like there's definitely something fishy, but maybe there was a good reason for them to want yeah. to do that or to feel like they needed to do that. Then you get into the crazy theories about aliens came and took them. But aliens had all these superior flying technology where they can fly from Mars to here or whatever. Why are they going to take some old 18-year-old plane or whatever that's on fire? <laughs> right? Yeah. There's a theory that it flew into a black hole. If there's a black hole like that, it probably sucked the whole Earth in, not just the plane. Right. Again, you get into the time slips and all that kind of stuff and all the yeah. good wacko stuff, right? None of those happened. No. <laughs> we can cross all those off the list. So what do you think it was? I mean, there's other theories out there. They're just the ones that caught my attention the most. So based on the story that you told, I'm sure there's like a bunch of other things and details and blah, blah, blah. I've read ones about cyber attacks and people were flying the plane from their computers and all this kind of stuff. Okay. There's a lot of things that could be like a one in a million may have happened or whatever. I think that the most likely thing is there was some sort of either mechanical or otherwise emergency that happened on the plane and they needed to go to the closest airport, which is why they had that big weird 180 degree turn and they were not able to make it to that airport in time to not crash. Yeah. And then because they couldn't do it, they just they stayed in an autopilot and flew until they ran out of fuel. I don't know, maybe the whole thing blew up. Nobody saw anything, right? That's there was right. no eyewitness to anything, right? I think it blew up because, like I said, it was pinging these satellites right up until 8 o'clock, and then it just kind of stopped, oh, okay. Right? Now, there is a theory, too, that, uh, you know, the satellite pings were faked, right? Well, I mean, then you just get into all kinds of crazy shit. But what was the thing that you were saying at the beginning of the story where they opened, like, an emergency channel and all they heard was mumbling? Yeah. I mean, if there was some kind of emergency in a plane or something, maybe the communications wasn't working properly. If there was a fire or something like that, right? Yeah, okay. So the transponder thing, I, I'm not sure how easy that can be damaged, but from what I read, it seems like that had to be manually turned off. And that's one of the things that the hero story kind of fits the most, but it seems like, I guess it could be damaged by fire. I mean, I'm sure it could, but... Uh, is the transponder the black box? No, the black box is something different. Oh, okay. The transponder, uh, you know, the biggest theory was that it was manually turned off. Well, I mean... They said the only way you could possibly ever turn that off is manually turning it off. But it was created by people. Things happen to things that people make. 
I guess, I mean, if it caught on fire and ruined, I guess it could. I mean, anything can malfunction, anything computer-related. And all it takes is a couple of recordings of this podcast to realize things can malfunction pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's probably like a one in a million chance that it would be damaged, but yeah. this was it. That's what I think. What do you think happened? I like the idea that something happened and the um, pilot tried to do an evasive maneuver to try and land the plane before it was too late. To me, that makes the most sense, but, I mean, who knows? Without having the um, flight recorder or the wreckage to put it back together, yeah. I guess it's just a mystery. Like, no one knows what the hell happened. Yeah. And like I said, when the story first came out, the fact that the military information wasn't there, that made it so freaky that it just disappeared and that was it. Nobody heard for her tell of it again. But mm-hmm. at least when you got the military information and you got that understanding that it did this big turn and it started going the other way, at least it kind of painted a little bit different picture. That's probably when people are saying that it just got into a black hole or something, blipped right off the screen, but it didn't. No, that's right. That that at least gave you some kind of thoughts. Okay, something did happen. The plane just didn't vanish completely. It made a weird turn and started going the other way. That's when you start thinking of terrorism, right, or hijacking. Right. Which, I mean, I guess it could have been that as well, but did any organization come out after and claim it? No, I think some organization come out and said something, but I don't think it was ever substantiated. Usually when something like that happens, an organization will, will celebrate it, right? Well, exactly. Like the point of the hijacking and terrorism is to get publicity for your hijacking and terrorism. Exactly. Yeah. That doesn't seem to fit exactly. Uh, and the thing is, there's lots of criticism that the air traffic control didn't respond quickly enough and alert the authorities quick enough when they disappeared and all that. But really, what are they going to do? <laughs> the plane yeah. is up there and you... I guess you'd assemble fighter jets. I don't know. But an emergency situation on a plane, is there any possible way to get them off or save them? I, I really don't know. I'm sure in the movies, they'll put masks on them, they'll jump off and land on the other plane. One thing that come out of it, though, Jeff Rake was the creator of a TV show called Manifest. Do you know of that show? I do know of it because the person who does my hair told me about it. <laughs> okay. He pitched the idea of the show for no success, but after the disappearance of, of Flight 370, NBC greenlit the show, so... And basically that show is about a plane that was flying and disappeared. But that's the story of Malaysian Flight 370. Crazy story. A routine flight that just disappeared off the face of the earth. The weirdest thing about that story is that it was so recent. Yeah. With the GPS technology out today, you figured you can't hide from anybody. You can ping somebody's phone that was on the flight and you'd find them or something like that. But I guess not. Yeah. That's another thing too, because at that point in time... If there was an emergency happening on the plane, the passengers would have been able to use their phones, right? I'm sure in certain airspaces, there's just no cellular technology. Unless somebody had a satellite phone or something. That's true. And plus, if it was a decompression or chamber thing, then they all would suffocate fairly quickly, right? So. Yeah. There you have it. Weird stories about flights that have disappeared without a trace. What do you think about these stories? You can share your ideas with us at somewhereedpodcast at gmail.com. Or on the Twitter at somewhereedpod or the Instagram machine at somewhereedpod. Or our website, somewhereedpodcast.com. If you haven't done so already, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen so you'll never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed this episode and you want to help us out, please leave a five-star review wherever you listen so that others can discover us. And don't be afraid to tell a friend about the Somewhere Podcast. These stories are somewhere by Somewhere. There's another theory that the lost city of Atlantis is under the Bermuda Triangle. There you go. And uh, what's the fish Avenger? Not Avenger. What's the fish Uh, guy? Aquaman. Yeah, Aquaman. The fish Avenger. 
uh, Aquaman and his subjects are trying to get more people to be living with them in yeah. the Atlantis, so they take down planes and stuff. To, I don't know. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, I guess it would make sense if they took down like barges that were carrying goods, because you know you probably don't get a lot of fresh fruit in Atlantis. That's right. Being as underwater and all. <laughs> 